Hey, it's a real privilege to be able to be here with you and share God's word with you. As Jason said, I'm Maz and I'm here with my dear wife of 40 years married, Pip. So, uh, and she will be my timekeeper this morning. So, <laughs> but it's always a privilege and an honor to uh, share God's word with God's family. And uh, we just want to affirm and honor you as you. Sorry? Oh, can you hear me now? Great, awesome. Um, yeah, I'm just so quietly spoken, I'm sorry. Well, those who know me would tell you I've just told a lie. <laughs> but we just want to honour and affirm you as you are launching into a new church plant as Keystone Church. And uh, we are praying for you and uh, supporting Jason in this. Uh, as Jason said, Pip and I have uh, been in pastoral ministry um, up until about six years ago for nearly 30 years, then in youth work uh, at a great church back then, Pamia Baptist. Woohoo! Uh, <laughs> and uh, where I really received a lot of my personal mentoring and opportunities. It was a phenomenal time. So we know what it's like to plant churches, to wonder if anyone's going to turn up, to put out the chairs, to clean beer off the hall floor, you name it. We did it for many years. We know the hard yards. And so we honour you for committing to do this and and being together in it. And uh, I guess it's on that that I want to share God's word with you about that. Some of you may have heard a phrase that's been around for a number of years, um, one day to live with the saints above, O oh glory. But to live with the saints below, well, that's another story. <laughs> so I want to talk to you about living with the saints below. Uh, the glory stuff will just be amazing. We, as the Bible says, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him and wait for him. So we, whatever you imagine heaven might be like, it's going to be far better than your imagination. But we're tasked with living with one another as an outpost of heaven. The church, as it were, is a representation of heaven on earth. And it's a relational family. And uh, when I first became a Christian uh, out of a very sort of fractured and dysfunctional family background, and I discovered another family, I thought it was going to be the most amazing ride, particularly as a pastor, because we're all Christians. And then reality set in. <laughs> Turn to the person next to you and say, you're different. <laughs> You see, gathered in this room as you launch Keystone Church is a diverse group of people, and we're tasked with the incredible responsibility of loving one another and being one and united in such a way that Jesus said the world knows he has been sent. So I want to talk about that very practically. You have your Bible with you. Uh, turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. I think it's going to be up on the screen. And I just want to read the first five verses and then share with you a number of thoughts. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded 
having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. These are challenging words, and Paul was very concerned in his letter to the Philippians, and you'll see it all through his letters, for the unity, the harmony, the oneness of the family of God. When Christ prayed what is truly the Lord's Prayer in John 17, if you read from around verse 19 onwards, he first prays for himself, then he prays for the disciples he's leaving behind, and then he prays for all the followers of Christ who would believe in him after he had risen. And in that last part of the prayer, there's a repetitive theme that Jesus prays, and it's simply this, Father, as we are one, may they be one. As I am in you and you in me, may they be in us too. May they be completely united. And then he says, for this reason, that the world may know you have sent me. That's a powerful prayer that Jesus prayed. What he's praying is that all believers who would follow his resurrection and believe in him would be so one, so united together that the world would know Christ had been. Earlier on in John 13, 34, 35, he said, a new command I give you, you love one another, what? As I have loved you, for what reason? So that the world will know you are my disciples. There's a guy called Francis Schaeffer who wrote a little but very challenging book called The Church Before the Watching World. And what he said in that little book is, the moment the pe- people know you are a Christian, part of the church, the body of Christ, it's like an invisible sign hangs over your head that says, watch this space. And he said, in these commands of Jesus in John 13 and John 17, Jesus has given the world the right to sit in judgment on the church and determine whether you and I are truly followers of Jesus by two things, the way we love one another and the way we stay in unity together. That is, I don't know about you, a weighty responsibility. That the watching world has the right to say, yes, you are a follower of Jesus because, man, look how you love one another. Yes, you are followers of Jesus because look how you fight for unity, for oneness. And I've learned over the years that unity, harmony in the family of God, and in any family, Pip and I are the proud parents of four married children, uh, the world's greatest eight grandchildren, Every grandparent always has to say that. And we know what it's like to just even maintain harmony within your home, let alone within the church family. And I found as I entered the years of ministry that much of my time as a pastor was sent, spent reconciling families and marriages and relationships because we're all different. 
And you will bring something different to this church plant in terms of your passions, your interests, your gifts, your talents. So we need, as it were, a recipe for harmony. And this is what Paul gives us in the verses that we've read. Because for Paul, it was a huge concern to the Philippian church. He was their spiritual father, their spiritual dad. If you read Acts 16, you'll read about the birth of the church in Philippi. And it was an amazing birth that the church had, a very supernatural, powerful thing. But supernatural, powerful things don't necessarily create unity and harmony. In actual fact, they can blow things out. And this church had amazing gifts, and Paul affirmed all those. And joy and peace is a great theme through the book. But right from chapter 1, towards the end of it, he says, I have this great concern that if I get out of prison to come and see you, I hope I find you standing as one person for the sake of the gospel. Then he says these words in chapter 2. And then a little later on in chapter 2 and verse 14, he asked them to do things without complaining and grumbling. Sounds like a parent line, doesn't it? Just do these things without grumbling, please, and complaining. It's a spiritual father to his family. Then in chapter 4, he even gets more serious about his heart for their unity, and he names two women who are fighting within the church, who are influential, Judea and Suntake, and he says, please help them to get on and think the same. You see, Paul knew that what would undermine the most their witness to the watching world was of the watching world heard through their lips the message of, we love God, we love one another, we love you, and in-house they're fighting. That undermines everything we say. There's a person who once said, you know, who you are, shout so loud, I cannot hear what you say. In other words, the example, the testimony, the witness of your life shouts so strongly, it overrides anything you might ever say to me. I never heard the message of Christ until 48 hours before I gave my life to Christ through a message at an Easter camp in March 1978. But... I saw the message of Christ in Pip, her family, and other believers around me. And then I heard the words of Christ, and I connected all the dots that all these Christians who are crossing my path and annoying the heck out of me, (laughs) making me feel very bad about my sinful life, were Christians not because they attended church, but because they had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So I saw the message, actually, before I heard the message. And that's what Paul's saying about unity. So he says, here's a few things I want to appeal to you. And in the first verse, he uses the little word, if, four times. If you have any encouragement of being united with Christ, if you have comfort from his love, if you have fellowship with the Spirit, if you have any tenderness and compassion. And he uses the word, if, not as like, oh, I hope you do, this is a question, it could actually easily be translated because you have these things. It's like a rhetorical question. He's not questioning whether you have these things. He's saying these four things are foundational to being a Christian if you have encouragement from being united with Christ. 
So you have a relationship with Christ. You're united with Christ. So it's then a contradiction in terms to be disunited with others. Because being in Christ is all about being united with Christ and with the family of God. I love being able to call other people my brother and sister, especially when I couldn't remember their name. It was extremely helpful. Hey, bro. (laughs) As I'm getting older, it's uh, coming in handy again. So there's encouragement by being united with Christ. And if I'm united with Christ, there should be the desire to want to be united with my brothers and sisters in the family of God. And that becomes a powerful witness. I experience the comfort of his love because I've experienced the fact that I matter to him and his love took him to the cross for me. And thirdly, I have fellowship with the Spirit. The moment I am born again, God's Spirit takes residence within my life. And so what Paul's saying foundationally here in these three things is you have a unity because you are united with Christ. You're comforted by his love. You've experienced his love, therefore you should share his love. And then he's saying you have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 12, around verse 12 and 13, that we've all been given the one spirit to drink from the one spirit. This word fellowship in that verse is a rich Greek word, koinonia, and I think we have a Greek scholar sitting in the front row here. (laughs) I rely on books. Um, I struggle speaking English. Koinonia is a rich New Testament word that conveys the idea of having things in common and being in partnership together, sharing things in common. That's what fellowship means. Fellowship doesn't mean we rock up here on a Sunday morning and we have an hour and a half together. Fellowship in ancient culture and in uh, this word conveys the idea that if we are united in Christ and we have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit together, we are in partnership together, we're in commitment to each other, what's yours is mine, what's mine is yours. That's what it means. It was also used in ancient times when a village was established. This is a beautiful picture to me. When a village was established, what is the greatest necessity of life next to food? Water. So what would happen is a village would be established around a well. Because you can go without food longer than you can go without water. Water is the essence, the sustenance of life. And fellowship, this word koinonia, was used to describe one village around one well. All drinking from the same well. I love that image. So when we have fellowship, koinonia is the family of God, we're in a sense one village gathered around one well, drinking of the one life-giving water of the Holy Spirit. And when we can do that in unity and harmony, believe me, that is attractive to the watching world. There is something about that. I would never hold myself out to be um, any perfect saintly Christian my wife for 40 years knows. 
But when you are a carrier of the presence of God and drinking from that well, that can attract people, even total strangers. I was sitting in Green Lane once when it was Georgie Pie. So that dates me. I had been to meet with someone. I went there because you could get a pie for a dollar. It was a cheap lunch. (laughs) And I'm sitting there just minding my own business, and this older man comes up to me, and he he said, I am so sorry to interrupt you. He said, you look deep in thought, but he said, could I sit down with you? I said, yeah, okay. Where's this going? He said... I was sitting across there, and he said, I've been watching you, and he said, there is something about you, something so peaceful, a presence around you, and then he just, he was a businessman who had moved up from Wellington, and he opened up about how things were in his marriage, his business, and he'd come to Auckland to connect with his daughter and make a fresh start, and he said, why are you so calm? I got to share my testimony and Christ with him. Two months later, he rang me up. We exchanged phone numbers, and he rang me to tell me he had reconnected his daughter who was going to the city Elam church. He had given his life to Christ, and he'd been baptized. I, I wish that happened every time. <laughs> there are some stories like that that I could share that you could share, but it taught me a valuable lesson that when I am drinking from the well, and I am living in vital union with Christ and with the family of God, there is something mysteriously attractive about that to the watching world. And the world that we're currently living in really needs that. They need to see the message of Christ as well as hear the message of Christ. And then Paul says, if you have any fellowship with the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion... So all those are foundational that Paul said, these things should be part of who you are. Then he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded. Some translations say by thinking the same thing is literally what it means. In other words, if you are united in Christ as the family of God, in that koinonia fellowship, you're drinking from the same well, you should be thinking the same thing. You should be like-minded. And that's a challenge for diverse people, isn't it? And you can't be like-minded and think the same thing in isolation. You can only do that in community. And that means the willingness to engage in the hard yard sometimes of challenging conversations in order to think the same thing. Of the willingness to listen in order to hear what the other person is thinking. Engaging in that process. And Paul says, if you would do this, if you would think the same thing, he said, you will make my joy complete. Because as as their spiritual father, the greatest thing that Paul wanted them to experience was their unity as a family. So I said, Pip and I have four adult children. We just rung our youngest on the way down this morning. It's her birthday today. She's 29. Am I right? Yeah. (laughs) Our eldest is uh, 39, the other two in between. And, you know, 
we have celebrated their personal achievements, their educational achievements, their careers, their calling. There's much that we love and celebrate about them. But do you know what the greatest thing, and Pip shared some things which I won't share with you, personal to our family just the other day with me about our kids connecting and that. And I said to her, that just warms my heart like nothing else. Because the greatest thing we want to see as parents in our children and as grandparents to our children is simply this, they get on together. They are friends. They love one another. And the joy that the four kids bring to me, the greatest, and I know to Pip, is not their personal individual achievements in their career, their academic achievements or whatever. It's when we watch them having each other's back. When one's going through pain and suffering and some of them have gone through their own terrible pain and suffering, the others are right there with them. They've got their back. They're friends. They communicate. They do coffees together. They do lunches together, holidays together. That makes, as a dad, my joy complete. That's what Paul was saying. There is nothing like the joy of seeing the family getting on with one another. Amen? Nothing like it. So he says, the ways you can do this is have the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. We've mentioned love. You understand love. Spirit and purpose is a phrase that almost has a musical meaning and theme to it. It's the simple idea of if you could imagine an orchestra of diverse instruments and voices, but they're all playing and singing from the same script so that they bring together all their diverse talents, abilities, musical instruments and voices to perform one piece, one purpose. They're all singing and playing from the same musical script. That's what Paul, in a sense, means when he says, please have the same purpose. Because individually, we all have different passions, gifts, talents, and some of us would like to rock up to church on a Sunday, and it's all about this one thing. The church is about this because of we have a particular passion. If it was me, the church would gather, and for the hour and a half, we'd just teach the Bible. But I know that no one would endure that <laughs> because of my love for God's Word. See, we all have different passions in our diversity, but they should be brought under one overarching purpose. And Paul paints the picture all through his letters as Jesus did through the Gospels. The overarching purpose is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, of who he is and what he's done. Everything comes in to serve that. There is beauty in diversity in being different. I used to love watching Pip in the years that she was a florist, and I got to be her assistant sometimes. I was fired many times for having an opinion <laughs> on how flowers should be arranged or putting hot water in the vase instead of cold. So I was her assistant on the basis I wasn't allowed to talk. I just had to clean. But I loved watching her take diverse individual flowers that on their own were beautiful in their diversity, their individuality, but then take them into an arrangement 
for a, a meeting, a business, a wedding, a bouquet for someone, and suddenly seeing these diverse individual flowers come together in an arrangement that on their own they could never achieve. But together the beauty was just stunning and made all the difference to the room. And I celebrated that gift. I could not understand how she could just look at these diverse flowers and suddenly arrangement, something that was like, wow. God looks at us and our individual diversity. And he says, I want to take you and all your beauty as an individual, and I want to arrange you in one family for one purpose, because together your diversity will create something far more beautiful for the watching world than if you remain on your own. That's, in a sense, the imagery of what Paul's saying in that simple phrase, one purpose. One spirit, one purpose. Yes, we will have diverse beliefs and views on things, but on the things essential, we must be united. St. Augustine, one of those old church fathers, had a wise saying, on things essential, unity, things non-essential, liberty, but in everything, love. So we've got to figure out what's important to us that we must be united on as a local church, what we can have liberty with, our different views on certain things. But in all of that discussion, there's love. There's love. So then he says, here's two things don't do, or you'll undermine unity. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Very simply, as we're coming to a close, that just simply means those two phrases, selfish ambition, vain conceit, simply mean pursuing my own gain at all cost and expense for my own glory. That's vain conceit. Selfish ambition says... I will want to achieve whatever I want, my agenda, whatever it costs, no matter who I have to trample on or hurt. And you might think that never happens in the church. Sadly, it does. And don't be vainly conceited, Paul's saying, and that's for my own glory. The vain, conceited person is someone who has an overinflated view of themselves and believes all their own press releases. That's putting it very simply and plainly. He says, don't be like that. Don't do that or you'll undermine. He says, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humility in Paul's day was not a virtue of good. It was seen as being a sign of weakness. Christ elevated humility. And if you read through the rest of those verses in Philippians 2, you'll see that. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, in the only self-descriptive phrase that Jesus ever gives of himself, he says, come follow me, take on my yoke, for I am what? Gentle and humble of heart. It's the only time Christ describes his humanity. And he elevates the virtue of humility. And humility is the ability not to put myself down, but as Romans 12 teaches, to have a healthy, sober view of myself, but at the same time being self-aware of who I am and responsible for my needs, the needs of my family, but never to the point of the exclusion of the needs of other people. 
A humble person is a person who has a self, a healthy self-view, but also, like Christ, is constantly looking out to the needs of others. That's why Paul says, each of you should not look only to your own needs, but also. Sometimes we have a false view of humility that we feel we must, as it were, put my needs aside to the needs of others. Sometimes we have to do that. But it's that ability to, to look after myself, but to be looking out for the needs of others. And then as we close, Paul says this in verse 5. He sums it all up saying, your attitude should simply be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to describe Christ as one who, though being equal with God, didn't grasp all that, gave it up to take on our human nature all the way to the cross to bring life and forgiveness to us. So what Paul is saying is, you want to live like this, all these things we've just talked about, you have to develop the attitude and the mind of Christ. It's the only way. Let's stand together, shall we? The team is going to come and lead us in some closing worship. And I pray that our hearts would be lifted to really worship Christ. I just want to pray for you as a church family as we enter into this moment of worship and honor you and bless you. Father, it is both a joy, an honor, and it's humbling to just call you Father, that we are your sons and daughters and we belong to the family of God that ultimately one day we'll be united in heaven and glory. And in the meantime, you have given us the privileged but weighty responsibility of representing heaven on earth here and now with all our diversities, our weaknesses, our strengths. And I pray for this church family here at Keystone Church that as they are beginning a journey of being a new family together in a new community, that there would be the desire that they want, like Paul said of the Philippians, they want to make your joy complete by being like-minded, by having the same spirit and purpose, the same love for one another, and that as we are united with Christ, we want to be united with one another. And Father, I pray for their witness in this community that the watching world around them would see their love, would see the oneness that is growing and developing within this expression of your family, and they would be saying, we want what you have. Father, may your spirit rest upon this family and permeate out into the community around them. We bless you in the name of Jesus. Amen.